so, Zechariah 13. Uh, just in case you were not here last week, uh, it, chapter 12 is all about uh, end-time battle, the people, nations coming against Jerusalem, about the defeat of the nations coming against Jerusalem uh, in a near place called Megiddo, which in the book of Revelation, that Hebrew becomes uh, Har, Mount of Megiddon, Armageddon, Armageddon in the in the book of Revelation Greek, and then it talked about in chapter twelve. It talked about um, the revival that would come, the the awakening, renewal, revival that would come uh, to the Jewish people, both the line of David and the line of Levi, if you remember, um, that would come at the end of history. And then chapter thirteen, verse one, uh, ended with a beautiful image of the fountain that God will be pouring out on the world at that point to cleanse from sin and uncleanness. So uh, flowing out of that, that's a good metaphor, flowing out of that fountain that cleanses from um, sin and uncleanness or sin and impurity, and that's part of the revival, in great end-time revival, um, we start at verse 2. And you see some other stuff that will be part of... Uh, the last days, the eschaton, the end time. Uh, chapter 14, just so that you will make it through chapter 13. Chapter 14 is an amazing chapter in, in so many ways uh, about what the eternal kingdom looks like after we make it through these birth pains of, of the coming of the eternal kingdom. Um, I say that to say chapter 13 is um, not easy to hear, because chapter 13 is um, talking about judgment and how there will always be a remnant, a remnant of God's people left. Uh, you know, everybody doesn't get on board, but God has promised to always have a remnant. Uh, the, the prophets throughout the Hebrew Bible kept saying that. You know, remember Elijah thought he was the only one left standing for God, and, and, and the Spirit had to remind God there were 350 other prophets. So throughout the Hebrew Bible, there's been that promise that God will always have a remnant. Um, that's sort of the same thing Jesus says about the church when he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Uh, we, we will last to the end time and last through the end time. Um, the, the Scriptures never have seen Massive, massive, massive numbers. Large numbers, great numbers, but not a complete coming of everybody uh, to the way and the will of God. But you keep running across that promise of the remnant. Uh, the promise of the remnant in some ways pushes you, points you toward the New Testament because the promise of a remnant is part of God's grace. No matter how bad we do, no matter how bad it gets, there's always going to be a remnant uh, of, of people that are faithful. So um, these are the two topics in chapter 13. And again, in case you're new with us or something, uh, Zechariah, post-exilic prophet, they've come back into the land after being exiled in Babylon. They're rebuilding their lives but in the rebuilding of their lives, they're slow at rebuilding the temple. And Zechariah is pushing them to rebuild the temple because the existence of the temple 
um, and, and the way Zacharias thinking the existence of the temple is necessary for the end time, is necessary for Messiah to come, Mashiach, Messiah to come. So he's pushing, and that's his specific task, pushing them to build the temple so that these days can happen. So with that, look at chapter 13, verse 2. There's a phrase that I've mentioned to you occurs about 17 times in these chapters. And on that day, so we're still looking at the that day, the end day, the last day, the last days. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And again, we've looked at Lord of hosts. The hosts we're talking about in the Bible are the angel armies. And um, Peterson's message just translates it that way. The Lord of angel armies. Those are the hosts that... that the Bible speaks of, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. Part of the end time, part of the great revival at the end is idolatry will be destroyed. That shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we love our idols. We are creative at making our idols. It was John Calvin who said, the human heart is an idol-making machine. We just make idols. We can take anything and turn it into our God. We can take anything and allow it to be the center of our lives. You know, for us, I don't think we have to worry about putting an Asherah or a sacred pole or a, or a statue of Baal in our homes. But uh, we're a little more um, sophisticated in the idols we create. You know, idols that just are so important to us, they, they, they even trump the importance of God to us. So obviously part of the end time renewal that God will bring to creation will include a cleansing of idols. You know, um, and Zechariah's talking about that. He says, God, the Lord speaks, I will cut off the names. That's the spirit, the person, the power, the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Wipe out everything that... that um, is, is contrary to God. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. So with the idols go false prophets. Just like idolatry is a perpetual human issue. False prophets is a perpetual human issue. And part of the reason the Christian Jewish community has scripture is to help us determine what a false prophet is as opposed to a true prophet. But here at the end, God's going to take care of the idols. He's going to take care of the spirit of uncleanness or impurity or immorality. He's going to take care of false prophets. Look at verse 3. And if anyone again prophesies, this, this is hard to hear, but watch this. If anyone again prophesies, his father and his mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, what is the punishment for false prophesying? Death. So it's, it's almost a sense that is revived and renewed at this point. I think part of what's being alluded to here again is that end time battle, that end time battle that will do away uh, with those who oppose God. But yeah, um, I think for us to hear this, to be reminded of the book of Deuteronomy, even though I'm kind of glad we don't do the Inquisition, 
you know, we don't, we're not killing our false prophets. Um, I'm grateful for that, and that's another conversation. But at the same time, we need to realize how, how seriously God takes the existence of false prophets and how damaging the, uh, they are. One of the books that we used to recommend a lot of times, sort of remedial work to clergy, is a little thin book called The Cruelty of Heresy. And in that book, it was written by an Episcopal bishop. In that book, he goes through all the classic heresies of the Christian community that we have been participating in since, since New Testament period. And you don't need to know what all these are, but you're welcome to order the book. Whether it's Gnosticism, Donatism, Docetism, Arianism, the list goes on. We, you know, there's no, nothing new under the sun. All the heresies that we still participate in, we, we just recycle. Um, but the reason we gave that book a lot to, as a remedial work to, to clergy to be is uh, we like the fact that Fitzsimmons is not just an explanation of heresies, which is good and interesting, and you should avoid them, um, but the title, The Cruelty of Heresies. You know, if you're a heretic and you hold false teachings, it's not just a novel idea and strange idea that you're holding. There's a cruelty to propagating heresies. Um, you know, for instance, Arianism is one of the oldest heresies. Arianism teaches that Jesus is the greatest human being that's ever lived, but he's not God. He's not the same nature as God. Well, we declared that a heresy. We created the Nicene Creed to combat that heresy. Uh, it's called Arianism because the, the priest that was most popular for holding to it in the third, in the fourth century, was a priest, great guy, a lot of ways, a uh, priest named Arius. So um, the, 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 the heresy has been called Arianism. You know, I don't run across a lot of people who refer to themselves as Arians today, but the, 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 the heresy of Arianism is still alive and well. You know, if, if you put God here and Jesus here in any form or fashion, it's Arianism. Go, go, go read the Nicene Creed. He's God of God, true light of true God, very God of very God of one nature. That's why we go on like that in the Nicene Creed. Uh, it says not enough to say he's the greatest of all human beings. Um, you have to say he's not created. He's uncreated. He's begotten. He's not created. So, um, yeah, if you're an Arian, and we have Arians out there, uh, the most famous Arian movements today... Um, are um, Jehovah's Witnesses and um, Unitarian Unitarians, as opposed to Trinitarian Unitarian Universalists. Um, good people, but that's a heresy. You know, they see Jesus as the greatest of all created beings. Uh, so the church is being clear. The Christian faith has been clear about heresies, uh, and we just keep recycling them, though. Um, but false teachings or heresies. And by the way, the word heresy comes from a Greek word that means choose. So a false teaching, we term them heresies, is something people choose. Nobody makes you be a heretic. Nobody makes you be hold to false teachings. Uh, most people, you know, I, I, I'm honestly not as concerned about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Unitarians out there as I am the people that are sitting in Christian churches and they are just heretics by default. 
They can say the Nicene Creed, which we do every communion Sunday upstairs. They can say the Nicene Creed 45,000 times. And still they think that somehow God is above Jesus as opposed to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We can talk Trinity 45,000 times. And, you know, they still want to do the Trinity in steps or something. You know, God the Father, God the Son, and they just don't know what to do with God the Spirit. Um, you know, but we, we, we use the term co-equal. They can sing holy, holy, holy 40,000 times. And still they'll walk away with an impression that somehow Jesus is a created being, Jesus is not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Um, and it's something they choose. They may not even know they're choosing it, but they choose it. Uh, I remember in one of my churches, uh, some of you have done Disciple Bible Study. One of the last iterations of Disciple Bible Study was a uh, serious Bible study called Christian Believer. Any of you ever take Christian Believer when it was floating around? Um, it was one of the last iterations. You studied Christian theology. You had your manual where you did Bible study, but you had your book of readings where you read people like John Wesley, Martin Luther, St. Francis, St. Benedict. You, you, that was Christian believer. And I remember I was doing a Christian believer class one time in one of my churches, and I was just talking basic Trinitarian theology. God the Father is equal to God the Son, who's equal to God the Spirit, who's equal to God the Father, who's equal to God the Son, who's equal to God the Spirit. And there was this lady sitting there who had been a member of that church. She was a charter member of that church. It was created in 1952. And she came up to me at, well, no, she didn't. She went to her daughter and told her daughter that I was saying some bizarre stuff. So her daughter came and said, explain it to me. You know, when the New Testament talks about how Satan blinds our eyes, yeah, that's real. This somebody who has sung holy, 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 had done the Apostles' Creed, had done the Nicene Creed, had heard the word Trinity 40,000 times in their life. But yeah, um, just somehow it hadn't sunk in. Anyway, false teaching is not just, you know, an alternate way of doing it. You know, the church, I'm glad we don't do Inquisition anymore. There's a few days I have my moments and I wonder about that. But I'm glad we don't do Inquisition anymore. But we, you know, but we have lost sense that false teaching and heresy is, is cruel and dangerous and damaging. Um, anyway, the Bible takes false teaching very seriously. So you almost see part of the judgment here is it goes back to false teachers being killed. And you actually see a reference that the parents of the false teachers are supporting that. Yeah, we need to take seriously false teachers. Look at verse 4. On that day, there's your phrase again, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision or his guilt. Again, it's false prophets. All these people who had been prophesying false things. I mean, think about the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah talked about those prophets that preceded the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, preceded the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the conquest by the Babylonians. And you remember how... Jeremiah famously characterized those false prophets. They're running around crying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's what the king wanted to hear. The king wanted to hear, we're all fine. Everything's good. Everything's copacetic. Do y'all know that word copacetic? That's the Gastonia word. Everything's copacetic. Um, yeah, some people, particularly people in leadership, they want those false prophets. 
to do that. And that's why Jeremiah famously talked about the false prophets as those people who are running around right before Jerusalem falls and is judged. They're running around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So again, on that day, every prophet, false prophet, will be ashamed of his vision or his gift. When he prophesies, he will not put on a hairy cloak. That's the garb of the prophet, which you know that because you remember Elijah. But even if you don't remember Elijah, who do you remember? John the Baptist, who dressed like Elijah, who wore the, the garb of the prophet, that hairy cloak in order to deceive. So these are false prophets who wore, who, who had been wearing the, the, the hairy cloak in order to deceive. But now that false prophets are being judged, yeah, they're not putting it on. And they're, they're ashamed of their false prophecy. Verse 5, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soul. So these false prophets all of a sudden are saying, I'm not a prophet. I'm a farmer. You know, they're, they're trying to, they, judgment's coming. For a man sold me in my youth. So apprenticed him somehow in his youth. Verse 6, and if one asks him, what are, these, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Okay, wounds. Um, what are these wounds on your back, false prophet? And you can actually, the Hebrew there is interesting. It may be wounds between the hands, wounds on my back. Your translation may do different things there, but they're wounds. What we know, because we've read the book, what we know, like for instance, the most famous, well, let me show you. Go, go back to um, go back to 1 Kings, because you'll remember this story, but you may have missed this piece of it. Go back to 1 Kings. Chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18. This is when Elijah uh, did his contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember that? Okay. Um, you know, the Baal prophets are trying to get their God to do something, and Elijah's going to get his God to do something. We know which God prevails on Mount Carmel. Um so if you look at 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, there's one little piece I want to show you, but it's a fascinating text. Um, look, start at verse 24. He's, Elijah is taunting, mocking the false prophets of Baal, and he's telling them, okay, you try to get your God to do something. So look at verse 24, 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, and you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God and put, put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So they've got the sacrifice there. They're just wanting Baal to, to light, light the fire and consume the sacrifice. So they call on Baal, the false god, from morning till noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. Elijah's not shocked. And they limped around the altar they have made, yeah, they're, they're dancing around the altar all day and calling on Baal, and they're getting tired by this point. You know, I don't know that I would recommend. I like Elijah's behavior at this point. 
I try not to act this way, but <laughs> verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry louder if he's your God. Either he is musing, or, you know, he's just kind of daydreaming, or he is relieving himself. Your God's gone to the bathroom. He's not doing anything for you. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. He's showing the impotency of their God. But here, here's what I want you to see, going back to Zechariah verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Um, we have evidence, quite a bit of evidence, of false prophets, pagan gods, pagan worshipers, getting themselves into a frenzy as they worship their God, and, and harming themselves, mutilating themselves. Self-mutilation. Um, not a good thing, ever. But self-mutilation was part of the um, worship of some of the, some of the pagans in this area. Um, just in case you think this is not anything that happens, I'll tell you one quick story. Um, when I was an intern at Duke Devante School, this shows you how people people just know what they know. I had a, I had a good member of my church. She was there every Sunday. Never quite knew what she did on Saturday nights, though. <laughs> she um, was in a band. And I don't even know, I guess these things still exist. She was in a punk rock, heavy metal type band. Well, they were playing at a place in Chapel Hill. So um, she invited me, her Duke intern on staff with her clergy. And I can name the place and some of you would remember it if you were around <laughs> Chapel Hill 30 years ago. I went, Tammy went with me, we were dating. That was her home church, my wife, Tammy. We went. It was one of the most bizarre moments of my life. <laughs> Here I'm literally, I'm still in Navy jacket, penny loafers. I don't like choices early in the morning when I'm getting dressed. I was in khakis, penny, uh, penny loafers, Navy jacket. Oh, I stood out. <laughs> we went in. That's where I come to learn these um, kind of thick bracelets with kind of pointed studs. Because at that point, there were groups that would dance and beat each other with the, and draw blood. That was the point of that stuff. Here I am in my Navy jacket and pain loafers. <laughs> oh, it was bizarre. I mean, the most bizarre thing was this person had no concept that this was a foreign world for me. And I'll never forget, I'm there with Tammy. And T Tammy's enjoying it, by the way. <laughs> she still talks about me going to this place. I'll do anything for church folks. I'll do anything to grow and strengthen the church. And I thought I was making a pastoral visit in this place. <laughs> well, I was so, so, so grateful that this person's band was the first to take the stage. <laughs> I think there was about three strums of the guitar. I exited through this place's kitchen to get out of that place. Yeah, I mean, they had the things that drew blood from their ecstatic dancing. and But the, it gets weirder. Ne the next Sunday, there she is in my church again. 
And she said, I saw you there. She didn't say, I saw how quickly you left. She said, I saw you there. And she said, what did you think? And I, I just said, I, I'm sure I said something like it was interesting and, and tried to walk away. I mean, people just know what they know, and it's amazing how, how people can try, particularly in this culture, we, we, take, we, have, we like a religious buffet in this culture. We pick and choose parts of what we like and let go of other parts. You know, um, anyway, I can tell you how this person's, because it's been 35 years now, life didn't end well for her. Life didn't end faithful for her. She's not still walking with Christ. Anyway, so yeah, this, here's, that's why they're back to Zechariah. And if one asks, because these are, here's these false prophets being questioned, and they're saying, I'm not a prophet. I don't have the gift. I'm a farmer. And when, when they're asked, what about these wounds on your back? They respond, these wounds I received at the house of my friends. Yeah, I didn't get this worshiping pagan gods. You know, I was helping my friends build a barn or something. And that's where the wounds came from. So, um, yeah, judgment happens on false prophets. The Bible has a real issue with false prophets. Uh, look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus quotes this. Jesus quotes this. Uh, look at verse 7 and 8. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's what Jesus quotes in the 26th chapter of Matthew as his disciples are fleeing from him on, the, on that last night of his, of his earthly ministry. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Um, probably what Zechariah is talking about here is strike the shepherds being the false shepherds, the false prophets. Yeah, you, you, you strike those leaders, um, their, 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 flock, their flock scatter. I mean, um, you know, there's been some famous false teachers throughout the last couple thousand years. And, you know, when something happened to them, their flocks usually scattered. And they, their flocks usually didn't survive after them because they were, their flocks were, were, were built around the false prophet. But Jesus quoted it sort of in reference to himself. Strike the shepherd, sheep run. And he quotes it in the last night. Look at verse 8 and 9, and, eight and, nine, and we'll, we'll wrap it up. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds, here's the remnant, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. That's the remnant, according to Zechariah. That's the percentage that will remain faithful, that will not be part of this judgment. Um, and I will put this third, notice this third, this remnant, into the fire and refine them. That language is used a lot in the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist says the coming of the Holy Spirit is judgment and fire. The Holy Spirit refines us. The Holy Spirit, uh, you go to John 15, where Jesus talks about the vine dresser. The, the, we, we get pruned, we get molded. We get shaped. We get refined in the fire. Um, that's the way God works on his remnant. You know, there's, there's days I'm sure you're like me. I want to say, God, just lighten up on me today. You know, I want to be more like Christ, but can I take about a week's vacation on the process? 
So here you see the third, the remnant, the ones who are left are being refined. And testing will refine you if you hadn't figured that one out. You know, that's why, by the way, I'm convinced the world around us watches us closely when we suffer to see how we do it. Watches us closely when life is not going our way to see how we respond. Yeah, suffering, we don't like it, but it's, um, it refines us. Uh, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. That's a good promise in the midst of the refining. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Uh, that's covenant language that occurs throughout the Bible. You know, the, the, this remnant are the people that stay true to the covenant. Um, we have a famous covenant prayer in the Wesleyan tradition where we usually do it on around New Year's where we renew our covenant, reaffirm our covenant with God. But yeah, we're called to be a covenant people. We're called to be in a certain relationship with God. He should be our God. We should be his people. Uh, that's the whole that, You know, when you go back to the Hebrew Bible, I know we love to do things like, well, they couldn't eat pork because we now know pork is bad for you. It's all about health reasons. Well, maybe, but there's some of that stuff they were told to do that we can't figure out has anything to do with health reasons. A lot of those laws, particularly kosher laws, the role of the kosher laws was do them because God said, said do them. But the practical role of the kosher law, laws was not to keep your arteries flowing well. The role, the purpose of the kosher laws is to keep you separate from the other people around you. you did, if you were keeping kosher, you probably didn't go eat supper with the worshipers of Baal down the street. So being in a covenant relationship with God means that we are God's unique, different, peculiar. That's Peter's term in the New Testament, and I like it because I've lived with God's people now for a long time. We're a peculiar people, um, but we're called to be different, differentiated from the world around us, God's peculiar people, um, because we're in a covenant relationship. We're in a covenant relationship. I have a unique relationship with my wife that I'm convinced no one else has that relationship with my wife because I'm in a covenant with her, marriage covenant with her. Our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. So um, if we're related to God just like everybody else related to the God, we need to question the depth of our covenant relationship with God. You know, if I'm relate, related to every other female out there like I relate to my wife, there's an issue, big issue there. Um, yeah, covenant means that you're in a special, unique relationship, and that has huge implications on what you do or you don't do. Um, it would be a hard sell for me for you to try to convince me living consistently and constantly in the culture of a heavy metal band can somehow be reconciled with covenant living with God. You know, I'm not the one to judge. I'm hard-pressed, though, to think. I mean, there's certain things that just declare, you know, it's hard to be in a covenant relationship with God when, when you're worshiping like the prophets of Baal. But that's between, 
that you know you have to decide if you're part of the remnant or part of the crowd and that's an ongoing situation among the people of faith anyway so here and you know in the new testament book of revelation picks up the same stuff judgment massive revival the judgment that does brings to an end the evil the impurity the morality of the world god's remnant makes it through God's remnant makes it through. So next week with, with chapter 14, um, that's, um, that's the end of the end. That's the end of the end season in chapter 14. And for those of you that have been hanging out with me doing some of the Jewish festivals, next week you'll see in chapter 14, the eternal kingdom is going to be presented as an eternal celebration of the festival of Sukkot or booths or tabernacles, whatever you want to call it. It's going to, it is pictured here in Zechariah. The eternal kingdom is pictured here as an eternal, that Jewish festival. That is really, uh, Sukkot was one of the three, and we'll talk about some next week, but Sukkot was one of the, was one of the three pilgrimage festivals where people went back to Jerusalem, if at all possible. Passover, um, um, Shavuot, Pentecost, and Sukkot were the three pilgrimage festivals where if at all possible you went back to Jerusalem, just like Jesus did for those festivals. Um, and we'll talk about what happened at Sukkot and why Zechariah and the Jewish community envisions the end, the eternal kingdom, as an ongoing enjoyment of the festival of Sukkot. So maybe that can be your homework. Learn a little bit about Sukkot between now and next week. Because you probably... Now, the book of Revelation, you just don't know this, until somebody points out, the book of Revelation pictures the eternal kingdom as an eternal celebration of Sukkot because John was Jewish. And that's the way God gave him the vision. So, yeah, you may want to learn a little bit about Sukkot, and I'll touch on it as we have to in Zechariah 14. That's why we think a lot of what we say about the eternal kingdom um, is painted in the imagery of Sukkot or tabernacles. Or There's various names for the festival. Sukkot's the Hebrew name, but it's also called tabernacles or booths. Because Sukkah are those little temporary dwellings your Jewish friends build and live in during the week of Sukkot. Now, they have to be pretty orthodox to do that. But you are now, you, there, there is an orthodox community in Charlotte, so you will see sukkah being built in people's backyards and on their balconies um, because there is an orthodox Jewish community there now. But Sukkot is one of the biblical holidays for the Jewish people, and it becomes the picture of the eternal kingdom. But anyway, that, that's, that's chapter 14, which would be next.